Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. For this week's episode, I've got a guest for you guys that I think you're going to find very interesting. I spoke with him for over an hour, and honestly, I could have picked his brain for many more hours afterward. So as I've been deciding what to put out for content right now as we're working towards our next long-form wrongful conviction case, as I've always said, I want to put out useful content to you. And it occurred to me, that one thing that I can do that will help all of us be better at what we do later when we're investigating cases is to bring on experts that can educate us in all realms of the criminal justice system. And today's guest fits that bill perfectly. He happens to be the father of one of our listeners. Thanks, Josh, for suggesting him. And he is an expert in the Fourth Amendment and how it applies to law enforcement in regards to searches and seizures. It's a great listen. I think you're all going to like it, and I hope you all get a lot out of it. I know I learned quite a bit during this conversation. Now, just as a heads up for this week's follow-up, because what Eric is doing is answering questions that you all submitted to me, I don't expect that we're going to have a lot of questions for this week's Friday follow-up episode. So I decided not to put in a missing persons of the week into this episode, but instead myself, Janet, and Zach are all going to highlight a different missing persons case on this week's follow-up. And then, of course, we will take some questions if you guys have any. So that'll all be coming up on Friday. But right now, here's my conversation with Eric Stewart. All right, I'm joined today by Eric Stewart. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm really interested to hear your, your full background. I'm going to let you explain that. Your son, Josh, uh, who's a longtime listener of ours, had, had reached out and said that you would be a great resource to talk about search and seizure issues. Um, so he says you're an expert. What say you? What's your background? I don't know about that, but I'll I'll give you my background. I was in, I've been in I just actually retired in February. I was uh, 38 years in law enforcement. I started out with the uh, Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. I was there nine years. Spent the majority of that time working street gangs. That's really kind of my background was working gangs. I worked gangs in the jails and then out on the road for, uh, did patrol for about two years and then went back in the gang unit for about four years. I lateraled to Colorado uh, in 94. So I went to the Aurora Police Department. I was there 23 and a half years. Ten and a half of those years I spent in the gang unit, working metro gangs, working uh, so investigations and, and things like that. Promoted to detective, promoted to sergeant. I think I was a detective for a 
probably less than a year, if I recall correctly, and then I promoted to sergeant, went back to the gang unit, ran that for a couple of years, was a, a patrol sergeant, promoted lieutenant, had a myriad of assignments, ran the academy, ran a firing range, taught leadership around the state for about a year and a half, which I still do now, but uh, was a watch commander. What else did I do? I ran the recruiting and background unit, bunch of bunch of different assignments, promoted to captain, uh, worked in the chief's office for about a year doing core requests and reviewing uh, Fourth Amendment issues, use of force applications, things like that. Uh, I wrote all the training bulletins for Aurora PD while I was down there for a long period of time on all Fourth Amendment stuff. I teach around the state. I actually teach around the country on Fourth Amendment issues. From captain, I promoted to uh, commander. I ran a a district uh, down in Aurora for about a year and a half. Uh, Then um, moved on to internal affairs, oversaw that for about four months. I left Aurora, retired from Aurora to take a deputy chief position up in Loveland, Colorado. And I was there for five and a half years. I was the interim chief for about eight months. And then um, February, I decided to retire. So uh, right now, I do a lot of teaching around the state. I've been doing that for a long time on Fourth Amendment issues, and I, I'm doing it nationally as well. And then uh, I do a lot of teaching for the International Association of Chiefs, Chiefs of Police uh, for their leadership and police organizations class and their first-line leadership stuff. So I've been doing that for years. So that's kind of kind of my background. A long time. So it's like a lifetime, an adult lifetime of law enforcement work. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, interesting. You were at, so I was, I was living in Aurora, Colorado for some of that time that you were there. I lived really? in the, uh, apartment complex. Uh, I can't remember what it was called, but it was, uh, uh, it was Iliff. There was like a, there was like a Safeway on one side of the road and a big, a big brown apartment complex with like 30 units on the right side of the road. Like Iliff and Chambers. I'm trying to yeah. picture that. Yep. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Lived there for a couple of years. Real quick before we dig into some of these, uh, most of what I have for you is, questions that my listener sent directly into that they wanted to hear from someone with your type of experience with Fourth Amendment issues, as you mentioned. But just real briefly, uh, can you give us a summary for anybody that doesn't know, what is the Fourth Amendment and how it applies to law enforcement? Yeah. So the Fourth Amendment, it's it's interesting. It's 54 words. That's it. It's one paragraph that pretty much drives everything law enforcement does. I mean, law enforcement works a little bit in the Fifth Amendment, Sixth Amendment, 14th due process, that kind of stuff. But all the case law that drives what we do is really based on the Fourth Amendment. And really what it talks about is reasonableness. It's, it's, it, the, the amendment is about law enforcement or, or government agents not acting in an unreasonable manner. So uh, everything has to be reasonable. And so that's actually the touchstone of the Fourth Amendment is reasonableness. And it's viewed through the lens of a reasonable person and a reasonable officer. Right. And then based on the totality of circumstances and and it guards against unreasonable searches and seizures. And it also guards against uh, essentially talks about, you know, not being able to issue a warrant except upon probable cause uh, and oath of affirmation and those kinds of things. So I, I can tell you this, the majority of the stuff that we do within the Fourth Amendment is outside of getting warrants. Mm-hmm. But that's. That's the crux of the Fourth Amendment, really. It's unreason, it's reasonable, unreasonable searches and seizures. That's what it's about. Uh, and then making sure if you're getting a warrant, it's based on probable cause and oath of affirmation. And it clearly identifies as the place, places to be people and places to be seized and, and um, 
search. So that's 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 the extent of it. Great, and that is um, one of the questions somebody had asked, mm-hmm. and and I think you just answered it. Is are the search and seizure laws consistent throughout the United States, or is it by state by state? But it's it's part of the United States Constitution, so it should should be the same standard everywhere. That's actually a great question. The Fourth Amendment and reasonable is supposed to be objective. So from that view, it's supposed to be objective throughout the United States. I can tell you that the states, well, let's put it this so at the federal level, uh, if the Supreme Court makes a ruling, it's it essentially sets minimal standards uh, for the United States as far as Fourth Amendment goes. Mm-hmm. States can enact stricter standards on government agents than the federal government does. So honestly, it is a state by state thing. A lot of times now, most states on most issues abide by the Fourth Amendment, or I mean, abide by the Supreme Court decision. Uh, but a lot of times they don't. So mm-hmm. again, states can enact stricter standards. For example, I'll give you one. This, this is pretty simple. So in Colorado, we have a consent law. Uh, that got passed back in 2010. And there's a requirement uh, in Colorado that officers make sure that people, if they're asking for consent, that those people understand they have a right to refuse consent. So that's not something on the federal level. Essentially, you can just ask people for consent if they say yes. And as long as it's knowing, voluntary, intelligent, they have the authority to grant you the consent. Uh, and the scope of that, no big deal. You don't have to make sure that they understand they have a right to refuse. In this state, that is a factor that they look at. So the states can enact stricter standards on their officers. You go up to, I think, Washington, Oregon, like when it comes to vehicles, right? So if you have probable cause to search a vehicle, according to the federal government, the U.S. Supreme Court, probable cause, if you have probable cause to search a vehicle, you can search the vehicle without a warrant. So if we're talking about on a public roadway, that kind of stuff that you contact, if you if you develop probable cause to believe there's contraband in that vehicle, you can search it without a warrant. Up those two states, you still have to get a warrant. So they can make it harder on the government officials. I hope that kind of explains it. Yeah. So they can't make it easier, but they can make it more restrictive. And, and do I understand right that that Colorado law? So that would be like, say, you're at a traffic stop and an officer mm-hmm. says, hey, d- hey, do you mind if I look in your trunk? In Colorado, would they have to say, hey, would you consent to me looking in your truck? And you should also know that you don't have to provide that consent, somehow inform them that they are not required to? Correct. Yeah. So you don't have to say it that way. That was the one thing when they passed that law. The legislature did not come out and mandate how officers had to ask questions. So uh, you don't have to say, hey, would you mind if I search? But before you answer that, you have a right to refuse. Understand you have a right to refuse. You don't have to couch it that way, but the bottom line is that the courts are going to view that as a factor if you fail to provide a comment or ask a question in such a way where that individual understands he or she has a right to refuse consent. So we're going to get into some of these more more specific questions. Uh, one I had, and I found it really interesting, and I don't – so I, I had a listener that asked how technologies and cell phones and things have kind of changed the game for law enforcement. And then another listener had had reached out to me privately. I was they want to stay anonymously, but this is a situation they just went through. They were um, they were pulled over and and arrested for DUI. Now, according to this to this to this listener, and this is kind of outside of the the realm of what we're talking about, but just for context' sake, mm-hmm. you know, the, the issue was you know him and his buddy had been the day before, two days before, sitting around the pickup truck, throwing their beer cans in the back of the truck. Okay. 
And then in this case, it's a few days later, and he was out driving some errands. Gets pulled over. They see the cans. They say they think he's drunk. He has. He's not, according to him. Gets out, and they uh, they do a field sobriety test for him, and then they say, "Okay, I'm arresting you for DUI." And he is literally begging the officer, "Give me a breathalyzer. I'm not drunk." And they arrest him anyway. So that was so the whole thing's already kind of starting out from his perspective. Like a pretty bad deal. This, this, yeah. they refuse to, they refuse to give him feel, uh, a, uh, a field breathalyzer test. Uh, and they arrest him based on the, um, uh, the field sobriety test and take him in. The issue comes in where we kind of get into, into this purview is during that, you know, they impounded his car and yeah. they had, when, when he got arrested, they, he had to turn in his phone. When he was bailed out and comes out, then he goes to get his property and they said they didn't have his phone. They were going to, there was, they were backed up. He'd have to come back later to get it to pick up the rest of his property. When he goes okay. and he picks up his property a couple hours later, he gets his phone. And I don't know how this is, but he's, he says that he was able to, to tell on his phone and confirm that in those two hours that they had his phone, that they had opened up his Facebook. They had gone through his Facebook messages. They had gone through his photos, his recently deleted photos. Um, other social media that, that essentially they had searched through his phone while they had it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then his, his question is, is, is that something that, that as far as you, you're aware of, and I know you're not a lawyer, but you work on the law enforcement side of this. Is, is there, is there a reason, is it, is, is that a reasonable search and seizure of his phone? No, not based on what he, what you just explained. So in 2014, um, there are a couple of cases that the Supreme Court combined to to review, and essentially, what you're talking about is they search the the phone incident to arrest. Okay, and there, there's two cases that, like, like I said, they combined into one. It's um, Georgia v. Worry and California v. Riley, but they combined them, and ultimately, the court said uh, that you could not search a phone incident to re- incident to arrest unless. I mean, very rare that if you had an exigency that allowed you to search it, and typically that would be something that, you know, somebody's going to die if you don't get in the phone and look at it to to, to pull mm-hmm. something out. It would really have to be that that exigent that you'd have to get it. Otherwise, I mean, the court was very um, informative and instructive in uh, that put that phone in a Faraday bag instead and then write a search warrant if you have probable cause. The bottom line is to be able to search a phone. Uh, just like pretty much everything else, and there there's some nuances to it, but uh, you have to have probable cause. But when it comes to a cell phone, uh, if you're going to seize it uh, and look for evidence, you would have to write a search warrant uh, to do it. So based on what your listener is telling you, uh, that would have been a violation of the listener's Fourth Amendment rights for them to go in through the phone without a warrant. So, And if they didn't uh, advise them they got a warrant, uh, they didn't provide him with any paperwork about that, then there's probably a good chance that um, they went through it without a warrant, which would have been a violation, at least just based on face value. Yeah. And the, and again, all, all things, this is all assuming that everything he's telling me is accurate. Yeah. And it doesn't sound like they, they've you've got the paperwork now that he's gotten the affidavit from the from the officer to, that's sent to the DA's office and everything. And there's nothing mentioned about they they didn't find anything mm-hmm. from the phone that they're not using. So I don't know if there's so there, I don't think it, from my perspective it doesn't fall into you know fruit of the poisonous tree type of thing because they didn't pull anything out of it. But I don't know if if that it will end up affecting his prosecution later. The fact that they illegally searched his phone. Yeah, that that'll 
I mean, I'm sure that's going to be something that maybe the defense raises as, you know, I mean, so it might not have anything to do with his, um, what he's going to be doing, dealing with a DUI charge, but he certainly might have a claim uh, against that um, agency or those officers from a Fourth Amendment standpoint, from from a violation standpoint. So, Sure. And along those lines, uh, we had somebody ask, so what happens? So when you when when you execute a search warrant on a house or a car or property, whatever it is, and you you take items because of that, what happens to those items after? Like, like is there a point where then they're just given back? It depends on what those items are. I mean, if they if they're seizing items from the car or home, if they wrote a warrant, then those items are probably being seized because they're evidence of a crime of some sort, what they're investigating, right? If they're not going to use, so if it's paperwork, those kinds of effects, things like that, there's a good chance those, if they're not going to ultimately use them to further the prosecution, they'll probably give them back. But in most cases, the stuff that sees is going to be used for uh, further prosecution. There are times, yeah, definitely. I mean, when, when, um, a case is dispoed. So when everything is all said and done, everything's done with it, uh, some of the evidence does end up getting returned uh, or some of the stuff that was taken would get returned to the family. But I can t- tell you in a lot of instances, that stuff, what they're taking, they're going to be using as evidence. So it's probably not going to go back. But, you know, that's more of a a case by case basis, if you will, and it, again, it depends on what they took. So, yeah, yeah, I think I think a lot of a lot of the question comes in in again getting back to like the modern day electronics. So, like mm-hmm. if you're if, if you're seizing, it seems like very often, and someone did ask too if warrants have to be specific in this manner as well. But if they're, if they're they're searching a house and they're taking the computers and phones and things like that because they're looking for something specific on the computer. Uh, then does that whole computer, those phones get taken, but it, uh, or, or do they keep that or do they return it? Um, but then they also, the other question was, do, do warrants have to be specific that we're going in and we're searching for, we're looking for a desktop computer? We're looking, or, or, or are you able to kind of blanket statement any kind of technology? How does that work? No, there has to be particularity to the, uh, to the warrant to, to seize things that you're looking for. So it's not, the courts typically are not going to sign off on a general, hey, we're just looking for all electronics. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So they're going to have to kind of explain in the uh, affidavit or in the warrant uh, what they're looking for and and specifically why they're looking for these particular pieces. That's going to you have to have p- uh, particularity in your report. Otherwise, it's probably not going to pass legal muster. Now, with the probable cause there. Would an officer just have to have probable cause, probable cause that this person committed a crime? That's why we want to go in and search for their, say, computer. Or do they have to further that and show probable cause that they are, that there would be evidence on that computer about that crime? Yeah. So probable cause, I think one of the things that's kind of a lot of people don't understand, it's just a probability. That's hence the name, you know, the, the wording probable right. cause. So it's not 100%. In fact, the courts have looked at it. They've never really ruled on a mathematical equation or a number uh, that you could say, well, okay, well, if it was 0%, 
you had zero probable cause at all, and then you had a hundred percent or a hundred number, uh, and that was all the probable cause you ever need. Uh, where would that lie? And most people go, well, maybe fifty point one percent because it's a little bit more than half. That must be probable cause. Well, the court it's kind of a trick thing, but the court has never actually come up with any mathematical number for it, and in fact has said it could be less than fifty percent. It's just based on the totality of the circumstances. So. Mm-hmm. When you're applying for a warrant, uh, it's just, is it probable that there could be, so if we're talking about computers and things like that, is it probable, is there a probability that that information that you're looking for, that evidence that you're looking for is actually on that computer? Uh, and so again, it doesn't have to be a hundred percent. So right. that's, in it, it's, as long as you're listing out the probable cause and it could be on these computers, then yes. And typically, for me, I wrote narcs, narcotics warrants a lot of times, things like that. So, you know, you're looking for any indicia that yeah, if you're talking about computer crimes, it's probably going to be every computer that they have, maybe ele- every electronic device that can hold that stuff. That's probably what's going to be written in the warrant to, to seize, to go through those things, to look if they find the evidence they're looking for. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at luckylandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, and so what are some examples of probable cause uh, in in the circumstances? Like, for example, say we're talking about, I don't know, maybe like a sex trafficking thing. Mm-hmm. If someone is suspected of sex trafficking, is it enough to say that's usually done on on the computer, so we want to take the computer to look for email? Or do you have to ha- go further than that usually and have, well based on on some other interaction we have we have reason to believe that he was sending emails about this and therefore we want the computer yeah again i think it's a more of a particular if if you you know if you're writing a warrant you're going to be because part of that affidavit is laying out your evidence why you believe mm-hmm. you have probable cause to believe this guy's doing that stuff so it's probably going to be pretty clear the the thing that the court doesn't want is a fishing expedition so that you're just kind of throwing stuff out and going, oh, yeah, let's take all of this stuff. So there has to be particularity with it. So, yes, I, I think in, in an affidavit, it's going to get explained that way. But, again, it's pretty easy for an officer to articulate that if somebody's using, uh, what, are the, what are the common methods of, that people use to human traffic? They will use their computers. They will use this. It's pretty easy to explain all that. 
mm-hmm. as to why to give the probable cause to believe there could be evidence of what you're looking for on all those computers. I hope that kind of explains it. But it it does. It's it seems the way I've always taken it is like you said that the the, the judges aren't they don't want a fishing expedi- ex, um, right. expedition. What they're looking for is I want to take this particular thing because I think there's a reasonable probability that evidence of this crime will be found on this thing. And if and if that reasonable probability is there, then they'll say, okay, go ahead and take it and look at it. Yeah, yeah. And that's funny, too, because even the wording, like you use reasonable probability, there's a difference between probable cause and reasonable suspicion, right? Now, sometimes those words get not reasonable suspicion necessarily, uh, you know, reasonable belief sometimes you'll hear for some people that it will equate to probable cause the way it's written so you have to be careful about even how the wording's used because reasonable suspicion is a is below probable cause which means if you only had reasonable suspicion you wouldn't be able to get a warrant you wouldn't be able to potentially search and seize anything right at that Mm -hmm. point so there are exceptions again if you're talking about vehicle searches and that gets off the topic of where you're, what, where we're at right now. But you know, if 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 it's an officer safety concern on a traffic stop, and you have reason to believe these people are dangerous, it's not probable cause. It's a it's essentially a reasonable suspicion type of a deal. It will allow you to not only pat those individuals down, but essentially pat the pat the car down, if you will. So it gets you in the car, searching it for weapons because of an officer safety issue, even though it's that doesn't give rise to probable cause. And you're traveling and teaching to all, all these officers around the around the country. Mm-hmm. You know, we we're coming at this from you know. I'm sure Josh told you that your son that you know what we do is wrongful conviction stuff. So we're always looking. For, yeah, you know, he did. For me, so what I'm always looking for is are things being done right? Yeah. When you're traveling and teaching officers, are you are you teaching them the best ways to be able to obtain their search warrants or to be able to search? Or are you cautioning them uh, to make sure that they are being careful to follow the law and not violate rights or a combination of both? I would say a combination of both. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to teach guys to do things that they shouldn't be doing, right? Right. Um, But if you study the law enough and you study the Fourth Amendment enough, you'll find things that uh, you can do that the courts, you know, essentially have allowed you to do based on opinion that. Uh, based on court opinions uh, that officers a lot of times don't know that they can do. So one of the things that I've seen in my career, uh, you know, is officers, a lot of times they, they will err on the side of caution and not do things. But then sometimes just based on maybe a, a lack of understanding of, of case law, things like that, sometimes they're, they think they're doing the right thing, but actually they violated the Fourth Amendment. So it's kind of interesting. So it's kind of what I try to make sure is they understand what they can do legally and work through, navigate, you know, the, the various case law to get to that. So they're not violating law when they're doing things so that they're not uh, exposing themselves to potential litigation or, you know, uh, getting sued either on a 1983 level or if the state has a civil uh, action that they can do like Colorado does since 2019 when they pass a law enforcement integrity bill. Um, it's much easier to sue police officers for pretty much any kind of Fourth Amendment violation. So I just want to make sure that they're not violating people's rights uh, and they're doing the right thing. And, and uh, you know, I mean, obviously that that goes to the whole discussion about public trust and right. 
and, and actually building trust so that, uh, the public, uh, will grant you the authority that you have as a law enforcement officer because they believe what you're doing is correct. So, I mean, that's, that's really the goal. You know, I appreciate you being out there doing that work because there, there, there is the balance. And I think sometimes, especially, particularly when you work in wrongful conviction mm-hmm. space in this space where you, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that there's, there's, there's two sides to this pendulum. And one side, we want to make sure we're protecting everybody's rights and we're doing everything, everything correctly and by the law. At the same time, there's generally a purpose for the work that the officers are doing and they're right. trying to keep people safe and get, get bad folks off the street and do yep. things like that. It's got to be tricky to find that balance. Uh, and it's, it's, it's admirable that you're out trying to make sure that we find that balance when we're doing it. Yeah. Well, the, the thing is that the police officers have to be able to, as the stuff is unfolding, be able to navigate case law so that they're doing the right thing so that, mm-hmm. that, that they're not getting in trouble. That's what's interesting. And I, I think most people don't understand that about law enforcement. So they always, it's easy to go, yeah, it's the cops. They, they screwed this up, right? But quite frankly, they have to do it in real time where when you look at prosecutors, defense attorneys, even judges, they have the luxury of having paralegals look their stuff up or right. they look it up on their own. And they're not being faced with, I've got to make this decision right now. So they can sit back and armchair quarterback what cops do and, 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 uh, and they've got plenty of time to do that and not worry about any ramifications if they make a mistake. Uh, if, if a DA messes something up on a case, essentially what happens is they're going to lose the case or they'll, you know, no big deal. Nothing's going to happen to that, uh, that attorney. If a judge makes a, um, a decision that is counter to Fourth Amendment, right? So a judge makes a ruling and, and there's clear case law that what the officers did was right, but the judge doesn't agree with it and throw, you know, and dismisses it or, or uh, suppresses a motion or anything like that. Nothing happens to them. Essentially, it gets appealed up and maybe they overturn it, right? And send it back mm-hmm. down to them for further things. Cops get sued for that stuff. And it, right. what's interesting, like I said, I, I teach this stuff all over the place. I've had DAs sitting in my class. I've had defense attorneys sitting in my class. And here's a, a guy with a, a no law degree teaching. Uh, Fourth Amendment stuff, and you got attorneys sitting in the class. And I, I had a DA in my class, the actual DA, the guy that was voted in mm-hmm. several years ago, and uh, he came up to me afterwards. And the the whole reason um, he was in this class, and they set the class up actually uh, several chiefs and uh, sheriffs in this particular area of Colorado on the Western Slope asked me to come in and teach this class, and they told him he needed to be in the class, so. He goes to the class, class is eight hours long. At the end of the day, he comes up to me and he's like, wow, that was a really interesting class. He goes, I didn't know you guys could do that stuff. Now, this is the DA, right? So when you think about that, that that's the hard part for officers to navigate. And I wish people understood that. They're trying to do things in real time and, and it's easy to armchair quarterback after the fact. And that's why the court looks at this from a reasonableness standard. And that's what the officers are supposed to be doing is if they're not for sure what they're doing, typically they'll err on the side of caution and not do it. But they're trying to look at it through the lens of what's reasonable. Mm -hmm. Would it be reasonable if you had a hundred people sitting and they're watching what you did, would your actions be reasonable? 
if you had 100 police officers that were considered reasonable officers with experience, would those say what your actions are are reasonable? That's kind of the guide that officers Mm -hmm. have to work at. But again, this stuff is going at real time. So I, I don't think that citizens understand that so much. And I get it. If we screw something up, then we we take we we need to take responsibility for it, but you know quite frankly, when people sit there and you know after the fact they want to just blast cops, well you didn't arrest guys. A lot of times that's because the DAs wouldn't accept the charges or whatever. There's a whole host of things. So I know it's kind of getting off topic a little bit, but it kind of maybe gives some background to citizens that are well. Why didn't the cops do this? Why didn't they do that? You know, kind of a deal. Or why did they make that mistake? And a lot of times they're just, they're very few cops out there that do things, not that there aren't any, that do things malicious. Most of them are just trying to do the right thing. And it's tough trying to navigate through law a lot of times because there's conflicting case law out there depending on where you're at too. So yeah, anyway, I'll get off my soapbox a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, you know, that's, I kind of I spent 16 years. I was a I was a firefighter for 16 years, and um, obviously a different set of circumstances. But but the real time aspect of it, it it resonates with me. I was I, as you were as you were talking about that. I'd always think about how you know we'd work a you know a rollover injury accident or something, mm-hmm. and we we got to extricate the patient, get him out, get him in the ambulance, get him to the hospital, and then we'd roll in the hospital. You know, and the you know the the doctor or the nurse in the hospital would ask, well, why didn't you intubate them? And like, well, because when I was dealing with the patient, they were in a car hanging upside down by their seatbelt on the side of a river bank in a pouring mm-hmm. down thunderstorm. You have them on a flat table and you have time to think about it and get, it, and get things yeah. right. So yeah, yeah it, it's a different world when you're, when you're having to do everything in the moment, real time. And it makes right. sense. Right. Has that, you know, one of the, one of the, Things that seems to have taken some popularity on social media lately is uh, particularly on on TikTok are people love to take their cameras out and and video traffic stops and video officers and and you know like they won't roll their window down because they don't have to they won't you know they won't they'll just hold their ID up to the window or right. whatever the case is and they and they push and you see it, it's. To me, it's it's a lot of these guys are just intentionally poking the poking mm-hmm. the tiger because they're trying to get some some clicks on on social media. Right. But one thing that is interesting about it is from what you see, and of course they wouldn't post it if it wasn't the case. So it's it's probably the minority. But from what you see, there are office, plenty of officers out there that don't know the search and seizure laws. You know, where they say, yep. "No, you have to do, you have to get out," and they say, "No, I don't." Yes, you do. Well, the law says. Do you find when you travel and teach? That you come across officers that that general that that don't really know the nuances of that law and they're learning it from you. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. Again, I you know what one of the things that I preach to the officers is obviously this is their job. They have to study this stuff. Mm-hmm. Typically, I can't speak for every state uh, that has peace officer standard and training curriculum, but. I'll just give an example of Colorado, and especially if you're familiar uh, with the state, you lived here. There are post requirements for Colorado peace officers every year, right? So there's a certain amount of training that they have to have on perishable skills, things like that. 
when it comes to law enforcement, or I mean, when it, when it comes to Fourth Amendment stuff, essentially what is the requirement is two hours of legal training per year. That's it. Okay. Now, I can tell you that it costs more every year for, for uh, municipalities, counties paying out money for Fourth Amendment violations than it does for pretty much anything else. Because you're doing that every day. You're not chasing people every day. You're not fighting with people every day. You're not shooting people, thank goodness, every day, right? As, as far as you every day coming to work, it's not like the movies, as you well know. But every day you are coming in contact with citizens and you're dealing in Fourth Amendment realm. And so I can tell you there's not enough emphasis, quite frankly. This is my, my, my opinion. There's not enough emphasis on teaching officers the law and updating the law and precedent. Typically, you get a DA coming in and saying, well, here's the case law that, that passed this year. Here's this. What do you think? Okay, let's move on to the next case. It's really, it's not, what I try to teach is the practical side of it. I, it's scenario-driven stuff. So we talk about, like, this is what happened. You make a traffic stop, you walk up, you do this, or you go do a knock and talk or whatever else. It's it's putting them into that position, and then what happens? What do you do? So I, I don't think there's enough emphasis in law enforcement nationally on uh, really studying and understanding the Fourth Amendment, and it's tough to navigate it. So I'm not making excuses for the officers because I think they should. And that was one thing through my career I focused heavily on was studying the Fourth Amendment so that I wasn't making mistakes, so that I wasn't... Uh, put myself in a position where I could be sued. But quite frankly, a lot of times, I, I, I don't know, It's if you've ever read, read a court opinion, it can be pretty boring, it could be legalese, it could be a whole host of things uh, that people aren't real interested in reading it. So instead, they just go based on what the FTO taught them. Well, what if you were off at training for 10 years and something changed, right? So I... I I don't think there's enough emphasis. I think uh, officers have to study it more. I don't think they study it enough, quite frankly. And uh, again, it, it's changing quite a bit. And so they really have to be in a position to to navigate that. And that's the only way you can bring the best service to your, your people too, right? To, to the citizens right. is by knowing the law and doing it correctly. But when it comes down to your what you're kind of talking about with the... Um, these um, First Amendment auditors really is what you're looking at a lot of times when they're doing that kind of stuff. I don't even think, yeah, peace officers really don't understand that people have a right to take pictures of you, videotape you, you know, whatever in a public or wherever they can be lawfully, they can do it. And, you know, the the Internet is full of videos where officers have you know, violated people's rights by simply because they don't understand that they have a First Amendment right to do it. You've got there's there's videos out there all over the place of people videotaping officers in the course of their duties, and these people can legally do that. And the officers will come up and grab their phone, throw it on the ground, smash it, or or they'll take the phone and arrest them for obstruction, which that's not an obstruction because they're videotaping them. And departments have paid out tons of money as a result of those things. And officers have lost their careers because not only are you violating the individual's First Amendment rights, but then again, you're if you seize the phone, if you do whatever, you there's a potential Fourth Amendment violation. So now you're dealing with that. So yeah, that, that's a problem. And uh, uh, 
you know, uh, again, there's probably not enough training on that for them to understand what they, that people can actually videotape you and right. watch you. I, I know that, uh, you know, the Colorado State Patrol paid out, I think it was, that was a few years back, 40 grand, or I think it was 41,000 to a guy that was just going around in front of uh, the station videotaping cars and, you know, taking pictures. And, and the guy actually was, I mean, some of these guys are really belligerent. They're just, like you said, poke the, poke the tiger. They, they're doing that to, to try to get you pissed off at them. Um, this guy was actually, for the most part, was pretty polite. And the officers came up, why are you videotaping it? You can't do that. Uh, I demand your name. Well, you can only demand people's names if you have reasonable suspicion at minimum, right? So this guy knew that. And he's like, well, I'm not going to give you my name because you don't have reasonable suspicion to detain me. And ultimately, the guy, the officer arrests the guy for obstruction. And I think the, the state patrol paid out 41000 as a result of it. So those things happen with regularity, unfortunately. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In our current season, uh, we were covering a lot of missing persons cases, and we ran into a couple of times where we have an adult person who's missing. Mm -hmm. It's unknown if they intentionally just decided to leave and not be found, which isn't a crime. They can do that. Or if there was some sort of foul play or it, or an accident and something something happened. And we ran into in one particular case where there's this big geographic area where people think maybe this person is like maybe they were they they got into these woods these properties somehow and died out in the woods mm. and um the the mother of this person was saying we want to you know the, the police told us that it's hard to search those we can't you know it's all private property how do how do missing persons cases like that particularly missing persons cases of adults now that's just some property that they want to search right but sometimes it's you know there's another case where they suspected we think that that they we they were last seen with these people and we think that something might have happened. They overdosed or they killed them or whatever happened. Mm. We want to go and search there. How does that that seems like that creates a real conundrum with because you have to show probable cause, but there's actually no we don't even know if a crime was committed. How can that be navigated? Well, if if something like that happens, typically police departments are going to spend resources to investigate it initially, right? So they're probably going to go out and check areas and do those things to investigate the initial call. It may get to a point, though, that if there's nothing that, so maybe they're talking to people that might have knowledge or that people might suspect that uh, have knowledge of this guy's, why he's missing, uh, and even if it's foul play. But if none of that stuff pans out, they go talk to people and there's just nothing there and there's nothing to indicate that um, maybe people still have a hunch 
maybe some reasonable suspicion to believe that there could be foul play, but it doesn't get further than that. They again, most departments will expend the resources initially to try to get the investigation going, but if it ultimately leads to nothing and they don't have anything further to do that, uh, first of all, they're not going to be able to get search warrants to go search places um, to try to find evidence. Uh, because again, uh, you know, what you have to have for a search warrant is probable cause. And if you don't have that, a judge is not going to give that to you. You can go, you talked about, you know, if it happens to be people's property, depending on where that is, that a lot of times officers are going to go new, do if it's a residence, for instance, right? So they think there, there is, is there potential evidence that might help, uh, further this investigation in this particular person's house, right? But it's only a hunch, or maybe maybe there's some reasonable suspicion there. Then you go do a knock and talk and try to get consent to search the house. If you're not successful with that, or the people say, no, I'm not going to give you consent, then you're kind of back to square one, right? So, yeah. again, departments will expend the resources initially, but ultimately, if 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 it goes cold or you know they're just not getting anywhere, a lot of times they'll just inactivate the case until they get something else that might some lead or something else that they'll reactivate it and go look for it and and, uh, expend the resources there to do that. So typically on lands, if you're talking about public property, no issue. If it's private property, depending on, you know, you can get into a whole discussion about curtilage and, you know, how close is that property? Does it fall under open fields where it doesn't become a search? Then we can look in those areas. But you know, most of the time they're going to try to go get consent from whoever owns the the land. I mean, if the land's just out there and people own it, but there's not, it's not developed or you, know, like you go up into parts of Wyoming or something like that and you're looking for something, that's really probably going to fall under the open fields doctrine, which then officers wouldn't need a search warrant to go search those areas, even if it was private property. Oh, that's interesting. So if you had, like, say an example, so somebody, some farmer owns 500 acres of land. Mm-hmm. And someone was, you know, believed that maybe they had wandered into that land and maybe that's where they're missing. So if it's, if it's just open vacant land, officers can just go in and search that without yeah, a they warrant. Yeah, don't, they don't need a warrant. Now, chances are something like that, if they know who the landowner is, mm-hmm. my, my get, my, I, I would surmise the officers, uh, would probably try to contact that guy and get permission to go there, uh, to look just from a consensual standpoint. But, there's a case called U.S. versus Dunn that that really was the landmark case on uh, open fields doctrine, and that was an interesting case and in, in which uh, DEA had um, information that uh, this guy Dunn was had a I, I believe it was a meth lab if I recall correctly in his barn. So he had acreage, he had a barn. I think the barn was about sixty yards or so away from his house mm-hmm. uh, on his property. He also had uh, fencing up around the property, uh, no trespassing signs, those things. I think the fences were locked. Um, the DEA agents actually went, climbed over the fences, went into the area by the barn, never never entered the barn, but went to the area uh, by the barn to try to further their suspicions. And sure enough, if I recall correctly, they were they smelled chemical odors and things that were indicative of uh, a potential lab, right? Narcotics mm-hmm. lab. They left. I think they came back either two or three more times and did the same thing. Ultimately, they wrote their warrant based on the information that they 
developed uh, and the evidence that they developed from going through the into that area. They serve the search warrant. Sure enough, it's a it's a narcotics lab. Dunn gets charged, goes to the Supreme Court of the United States, and that's where the open open fields doctrine really became precedent. And so there's some Dunn factors that they look at to determine. Ultimately, the court said no, it wasn't within curtilage. So therefore, it's open fields doctrine, and therefore the officers did not need a search warrant to go on the property. So oh, that's interesting. Even though it, so yeah. they were able to to climb the fence, jump yeah. over, yeah, all that because it wasn't so. With the done factors, they look at um, the the proximity to the house, fencing that's up around it that would um, kind of indicate curtilage, what it's used for, mm-hmm. uh, and then if they put up any kind of uh, obstruction of view, like you know meshing or you know that kind of stuff, fencing stuff that would would uh, block view. Those are the things essentially they're the done factors that the court looks at in determining curtilage or not. But typically. The way it's been explained, even back with uh, U.S. versus Oliver back in the 80s, is that curtilage is essentially the home and the immediate areas around the home that are used for essentially the extension of the interior of the home, if you will, I guess, is the way mm-hmm. to explain it. So, like your porch, side yards that are enclosed, and you're using that as Maybe that's where you entertain or whatever, your backyard, those kinds of things within uh, a distance, but it's covered uh, or are blocked from you, those kinds of things. Those would end up amounting to curtilage. Outside of that, and if they don't fall under the done factors, then officers can go up on those areas without having to worry about a warrant or or anything like that. Even driveways, to some extent, don't necessarily fall under curtilage. Now, what... Well, I guess I kind of answered my question because one thing I was going to ask is what if their officers are on a property legally searching for thing A, mm-hmm. and while they're there, they find evidence of a different crime. So if we're talking open fields, because my, my initial kind of thought was they have to, say they're out searching a property for a missing person and they and you know they find a meth lab or a, a marijuana grow or something out in the middle mm-hmm. of, the, of the property, but I, th- I guess that would fall into those done factors because it's open field stuff they're out there, yeah. but yeah. So, so pivoting that a little bit, what if, uh, if, if they were to get a search warrant for inside of a house to look for evidence of crime A, mm-hmm. and then while they're in there, they find evidence of a different crime? Is, is right. that all free game for them once they're, once they're in the house? Yeah, it, that then is going to fall under the plain view doctrine. So if you're okay. there lawfully, now typically if it's a search warrant, you're looking for certain things. If you see something that's clearly contraband or evidence, you can seize it from a plain view standpoint. A lot of times what the, you know, if if you're working with your DA's office, for instance, which typically uh, police officers will, a lot of places they require you to run your warrant b- before a DA, before it goes to a judge. So you're you're working uh, with the, the DA's office, the prosecutors, you're probably, you, you know, call them up, uh, you know, tell, tell the officers, you can seize it based on plain view, but. Uh, you might want to give the DA a call, let them know, because they might want you to amend the warrant to include now those things or other things you might be looking for, because that contraband could lead. So say you're in the house, you're looking for, well, I don't know, maybe you're whatever, right? But it's not narcotics. And then all of a sudden you come across a pile of meth, right? Right. And then you're like, oh, okay, well, I can seize that because it's clearly contraband. They can't have it. It's illegal. But now my 
perhaps my investigation shifts to also include narcotics trafficking. Mm -hmm. So now I might be looking for other indicia of narcotics trafficking. I'm going to probably have to amend that warrant uh, more than likely. I can seize that dope. But if I'm now looking for pay and O sheets and I'm looking for, you know, again, maybe you're looking for electronic devices that might have their transactions on those kinds of things, you're going to have to write kind of a, they're, they're just going to make you kind of amend your warrant to include Mm -hmm. that stuff. Or in some jurisdictions, they might have you write a completely different warrant. That all comes down to what, what the DAs want a lot of times. And that just depends on the area because there are some places that, allow electron or a, a telephonic warrants like california does that so you could just call the judge in a minute oh, gotcha. ultimately you're going to have to you know so there's ways to do that but it, it, if it's going to take your focus somewhere you, you can seize it based on plain view but it may end up leading to you having to amend your warrant to further a search for other evidence if that makes sense yeah when uh when officers come in to, to execute a search warrant mm-hmm. do they have to inform the the citizen of what the warrant is for and do they have to inform because I, I, I my understanding is the answer to that would be yes i'll let you answer that but um do they have to inform them for what crime they are investigating they have to leave them a copy of the warrant not the mm-hmm. whole thing like they don't have to lay out because a lot of times that has information in there that will help them especially if it was an informant that gave you the information that led to the warrant Mm-hmm. So you have to give them the warrant, tell them what you're looking for, and then leave a copy or a receipt of what you take. Uh, but you don't have to get into the particulars of, you know, so-and-so told us this, so this is what we're looking for. I, I would tell you probably most people, when they show up, they know what you're, you know, especially when you got a warrant in hand and I'm looking for child porn or I'm looking for narcotics or I'm looking for yeah. whatever evidence. So they pretty much know what it is. But you do have to leave them a copy of the warrant. And then, um, again, if you take anything, you have to leave a receipt. There, there are instances where uh, you can get approval by the judge to do essentially, not every state does this, but essentially sneak and peek warrants mm-hmm. where you can get into it like you're surveilling the house. You want to go in. You have probable cause uh, to get the warrant. So you get a warrant to go in and look around without tipping them off. Now, at some point, you're going to have to give them the warrant, but you can get the judge could approve it that you don't have to give the warrant to them for seven days. So that if you got in there and you were looking around, I I throw that number out. That's just a number I'm using. It's not like by law is this, but you can go in, look around, see what you're looking for or whatever. You're in there legally. So if there's other evidence that might include, you know, for another warrant or whatever else that you ultimately serve, and then you leave, hopefully not disturbing anything, and they never know that you were there, right? Gotcha. Yeah, and there's other things when you talk about warrants. There's uh, warrants called anticipatory warrants that in some jurisdictions, Colorado does not allow it, but in some jurisdictions where you can write a warrant because they have problems. So somebody's going to deliver dough, right? You know that you got an informant that says, I mean, this is a drug house, and this guy's getting his shipment in. On Wednesday at five o'clock, this car is going to show up. They're going to drop the dope, that kind of stuff. You could write a warrant before that, right? Mm -hmm. In anticipation that this is going to happen. You can't serve the warrant until you have the triggering event, like the car shows up 
and it's it's clear that the dope is now there, then you can serve the warrant. Uh, again, that's, you know, some states allow it, some states don't, most states do, but Colorado is one of, I think, four or five that don't. But yes, I I, I know I give you a little bit more with that, but um, just so people maybe understand a little bit more about how warrants work. Sure. Yeah. Uh, the last last question I have for you, and I think I've made it through everything that everybody sent in. Uh, dogs, uh, w- okay. with the use use of police, maybe like narcotic. We'll, we'll narrow it to like narcotics uh, dogs. Do you need probable cause to use the dogs, or can the dogs create your probable cause? Like, say you have a car stopped, yeah. and people are saying, "No, I refuse to let you search my car." Can you then bring the dog out without their consent? The dog hits on the car, then that gives you your probable cause. Yes. Yeah. So you don't have uh, the courts have ruled. So there's a, a court, Supreme Court case, Illinois versus Cabela's, right? Uh, that air is not protected around the car. So it's free air, right? So essentially, uh, you can take a dog and walk it around the car. If it alerts, that gives you the probable cause to search the vehicle for those narcotics. Now, uh, again, Colorado's weird. Uh, in 2019, there was a case called People vs. McKnight. That actually led to, it was a meth case that because narcotics were, uh, marijuana is legal in certain amounts and things like that here, that dog that was used in this particular instance was trained on marijuana. So the whole argument from the defense came up that because the dog was trained in marijuana, even though it hit on meth, and that's what it was, because the dog was trained in marijuana, that should be suppressed because of the legality of marijuana and all that stuff, right? And so ultimately what the court did, the Supreme Court of the United, uh, of Colorado, ultimately sided with the defense. And so in Colorado, if your dog is trained in the odor and detection of marijuana, then in order to run the dog around the car, you have to have probable cause to believe there's evidence, there's narcotics in the vehicle. If it's not trained in the odor of marijuana, then you could run the dog around in his free air. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's weird. It's a, the case is weird. Uh, so most places, it, just in general terms, uh, the air around the car is free. The only thing that the officers have to be concerned with is not extending the duration of the stop in order to run the dog around the car. So my point being, if they're only stopping the car for a traffic violation, right? Somebody broke blows a red light or whatever, and the officer pulls him over, right? In the course of the officer furthering that traffic investigation, if somebody else, another officer brings a drug dog by during the time it takes the officer to, you know, maybe run the driver, get a records check on the driver, ask the questions that it, the driver, uh, the uh, officer needs to ask the, about the stop and all that kind of stuff, and then write the ticket out or warning or whatever it is. That during that time, that dog walking around the car has to happen. On top of that, if uh, there is a lot of case law now, this so this particular case was U.S. versus Rodriguez, which sent off, and I think it was 2015 or 2016, but this is what sent off, set off a bunch of other cases now with regards to essentially duration of the stop and not extending the stop beyond that. So if you had the drug dog by yourself, you would have to get somebody over there essentially to help you, unless you could get consent, but to help you do it, and we're not going to, we'll talk about that, but to help you either, if you're the drug guy, drug dog guy, 
then somebody else should be filling out the ticket while you're running the dog around. So as long as you're not stopping the uh, furtherance of the traffic violation to run the dr- drug dog around, they'll say that's within the duration of the stop and you're good. Uh, if you extend it, Rodriguez was one of those where the officer had no reason. He had a hunch that these guys might be trafficking some dope in the car, mm-hmm. uh, but he had nothing more than that. They wouldn't give him consent to search. He calls up a drug dog. The dog's on its way. The guy finishes the stop. Uh, and again, these guys won't give him consent, but he holds on to him until the dog can come by and, and walk around the car, which it ultimately alerts and they find dope and they arrest her. It goes to um, the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, once you were done with the actual traffic stop, you could not delay and hold on to them to wait for the dog to show up. So anything beyond that was essentially an unlawful extension of the stop. So they suppressed. So on vehicles, and I'll give you a real quick because I, I, you know, on vehicles, it's, it's free air. If it's a house, then it becomes a curtilage issue. There's a case called uh, uh, Florida versus Hardinas. It's a 2013 case where officers had, I think they even had, maybe had probable cause to believe that uh, there was dope. These guys were growing, had a grow going on in the house. But at any rate, the officer brings his drug dog up to the door to see if the dog can smell the air coming out of it and, and alert, and which it did. And then they use that information to write the warrant. And then they hit the house. And sure enough, it's got dope in it. The Supreme Court of the United States actually suppressed that air smell from the dog because it was up on curtilage. It was up on the porch. And so because it came into a protected area, uh, that air was uh, protected. Essential. So wow. that got suppressed. So there are nuances between using dogs on houses versus cars. If mm-hmm. you had a dog in a public area, uh, storage lockers where there's no expectation of privacy and alerted on a, a storage locker, that would be okay. So just it's just different. So the marijuana thing is super interesting, uh, and I, we're running long, so I'm going to wrap this up. But it, 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 as you were saying, it makes sense if if it's legal to so like here in Michigan. Uh, I think we have the highest number. Uh, Marijuana is legal here also. And I think we have the highest uh, nationwide amount a person can have with them uh, at two and a half ounces. So if it's if it's legal to have two and a half ounces of marijuana in your car and a drug dog sniffs marijuana, mm-hmm. then they should that shouldn't give them then the right to search your car because all it did was alert that you may be doing something that's perfectly legal. Is that kind of the basis behind that law? Um, you know, I it's weird because. What you're talking about right now is kind of what the court did. There's a case out here called People versus Zuniga, which was a 2016 case. And essentially, that was the argument that the court made to uphold the dog search, uh, that the dog was trained in marijuana. The dog alerted on the car. Uh, The officer had his own probable cause. He didn't really need to bring the dog over, but he did. But they used that, and they actually said that the odor of marijuana is can be a factor in the totality of circumstances for probable cause. And they said that because even though essentially up to two ounces of, of well, an ounce, up to an ounce is legal from uh, recreational marijuana to have, uh-huh. and up to two ounces if you um, have a, a medical marijuana card out here, right? So mm-hmm. it, it was kind of interesting that, but then they said, well, look, there's a whole host of other possession uh, of marijuana that are, is still illegal here and still illegal federally. 
So that's mm-hmm. what they upheld it. So it kind of sounds like what Michigan's looking at or the way they do things. Well, I don't know how they do things with a yeah. dog. I was just trying to okay. compare to understand the reasoning behind them saying that uh, if a dog is trained in marijuana, then it yeah. can't be used to create probable cause. It has yeah. to have probable cause first. My thought was that right. the reason behind that would be because marijuana is not illegal, so you can't use that as then your probable cause to get in and find meth. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think ultimately maybe that's what the court that was their reasoning behind it, the analysis piece of it. But, uh, you know, again, they, they use that same analysis to uphold another case prior to the McKnight case. So it, what was really weird was how, at least in Colorado, in my opinion, it kind of, they kind of, um, contradicted their own precedent, even though they'll tell you they didn't, it's still Mm -hmm. Zuniga still a good case law. And then they just shifted stuff. But I think that's what you're going to see nationally is more and more um, states have legalized marijuana, whether it's recreational or just legalized it, uh, even at, at smaller amounts. You're going to, you know, you can't just use that, especially if your dog is trained in marijuana. You're going to have to have other factors beyond the odor itself to give you probable cause of search. And maybe most places will ultimately do what Colorado did and say, uh, essentially eliminating marijuana, you know, dogs that, that are trained in the detection of marijuana on, for traffic that you'd have to have probable cause you, so you don't need them anyway. Because if you develop your own probable cause from your own smeller, for instance, right, because that could be a factor, but then you've got nervousness, you've got conflicting stories about where they're going, you've got a lot of things that would indicate they are trafficking drugs, you wouldn't really need to bring a dog over anyway. You just go in and search it. The dog will just help you maybe kind of hit on where it's at sure so that would be about it all right eric well i've 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 kept you for over an hour so i think we'll go ahead and wrap this up but okay. i i really really appreciate you you coming on uh this is fascinating i could i could sit here for three hours and pick your brain about all Me this too. stuff i think it's fun i mean i that's i love this so yeah and uh and now whether you whether you consent to this or not you've become a resource for us if we have a probable cause question <laughs> in a case coming up i'll be reaching <laughs> out to you to ask your thoughts on it yeah absolutely no no problem i appreciate it i appreciate the opportunity it was pretty cool that uh how that worked out that you know josh is listening to you and then gets a hold of you and i mean how, how this all worked out is pretty neat so i appreciate it Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production. All music for the show is created and composed by Shane Yoder at PutThemInASong.com. The font you see on all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com Design Created manages and maintains our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our volunteer transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Courtney Wimberly, Erica Cantor, Melissa Cardenas, Kaywood Yomnick, and Danielle Rohr. And as always, thank you to all of you for your engagement and your support. If you like the show and you want to support us, you can do that in a number of ways. The number one way for you to support our work is to become a patron at patreon.com slash truthandjustice. If you join our Patreon, not only will you be financially supporting our work, but you'll also get something for your pledge. For just $5 per month, you'll get all episodes ad-free and also a video version of the Friday follow-ups that include an hour-long pre-show chat exclusive to our patrons. 
Other levels will get you a Truth and Justice Army t-shirt, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host a Friday follow-up episode. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice to sign up. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. It doesn't cost you a penny, and it goes a long way towards making the show more visible. If you have a case that you'd like us to consider covering, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page, follow us on Instagram, or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod, and I can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. <laughs>